Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Sessions podcast, episode seven. My name's Andy Ash, and I'm the host today, replacing Danny temporarily. I'm the CISO here at Netflix, and I'm joined today on a bumper edition by three panelists. We have three topics as well today. First one being validating the value of AI. Second one, securing the supply chain. And then we have our attack of the month, which is all around fake account creation. So onto our panelists today, Cyril Noltego, our resident expert. Hi, everyone. I'm Cyril Ortega. I'm Principal Security Researcher at Metafear. I look at public-facing threat research. Uh, Tom Bailey from Cytix. Tom, do you just want to introduce yourself? Thanks for having me on. So I'm Thomas, one of the co-founders at Cytix. My background goes back to the 10 years or so in the penetration testing space. I used to be a pen tester myself a few years ago. Decided I wanted to move away from actually sort of delivering that consultancy work and into building out products and innovations to actually help improve on what I saw to be quite a broken industry. Cool. Thank you. Okay. So the first topic today is validating the value of AI. So in the last year, as we all know, the AI genie is well and truly out of the bottle, gaining mainstream attention and usage across business, academia, and in our day-to-day lives. As a result, AI has become somewhat of a buzzword and used to sell solutions or make products appear smart. And modern, how much of this AI is real, which solutions really benefit from incorporating AI, and how can we validate these claims? So before we can start going on to the, the questions for the uh, for our guests, a couple of observations and, and, and actually a question for me. So my observations are I've been reading a lot, listening to a lot of podcasts, and I've been part of quite a few panels and roundtables where AI and security has been the main topic. And I would say that in 25 years of working in IT, I've never come across such an emotive subject and with such a range of opinion about the benefits or the challenges that AI presents. So there's a bit of fun as a first question. On a scale of zero to 10, zero being the apocalypse and the ending of the human race through bot overlords, and 10 being the liberation of humanity, allowing us to conquer galaxies beyond our own, where do you, Cyril, stand on what AI can bring to us? I'm going to go for a very neutral fit. A six. Fit. Go on. Yeah. Why, why is that? Uh, slightly positive. Um, obviously, with 10 being liberation of humankind, I feel like going anything higher than an eight is probably a, a bit too much. But um, I think, no, it's an exciting technology. And as you've seen in the past, you know, humankind keeps evolving by, you know, introducing new technologies. And I think... With any technology, it depends on people using it right in terms of how good or bad it will be. But okay, be confident that it will be positive for the human race in total. Good, good. I share that view. I would say a six, moving to a seven, depending on developments in the not too distant future. Tom, how about you? I think at, at the risk of kind of echoing a lot of the same sentiment, I'd give something of a, a Schrodinger kind of an answer, sat somewhere between three and seven and oscillating between the two of them perpetually. You know, at the moment, we're, we're still in a position where setting out those guardrails and, and meeting AI with a healthy level of skepticism means that there's a lot of potential for us to do a lot of good, not harm. But at the same time, there are definitely some bad actors who are using this for some pretty significant things. And it is still a bit of a race to make sure that we get those protections in place before those bad things are able to actually come to fruition, I think. It's an excellent answer, but unfortunately, two fence-sitters. I was hoping we'd have wildly differing views. But yeah, I think one, one of the things that I have witnessed in, in, in a lot of interactions around AI is that, like I say, it's a very emotive subject. 
but it's not an if statement. Whether the AI is here, it's not going to go away. And I think it's up to companies like Netsy and Citix to really push the benefit of using AI to enhance, in our case, security tooling. We have to be able to describe that accurately and how we're doing it, that explainability piece, and we'll, we'll come on to that. So the uh, first question I have is, how can AI in its current iteration realistically improve cybersecurity and what might this look like in the near future? So, Tom, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think the main thing it comes down to is volume. You know, in cybersecurity, we've been playing a game for a long, long time of everything from how do we handle the volume of logs when we're trying to do defensive operation? How do we handle the volume of vulnerabilities that are identified when, we, when we're talking about scanning and, and detection capabilities in the offensive space? And, and that level of volume is something which we've been trying to combat for a very, very long time. But the inconsistency between each of those, like between each of the different logs that are created or each of the different vulnerabilities that are created or each of the different outputs that are, are received from the different tools have meant that trying to come up with a traditional approach to being able to deal with any of that has really proved untenable, no matter how hard certain um, organizations might try to push the idea that they're able to do it. Whereas with AI, all of a sudden you're able to open up this whole realm of different possibilities being able to process lots and lots of very unstructured data in a very sort of fast and, and, and effective way. The other thing as well to look at it as well as just the structure of the data is also being able to do pattern recognition in a very different way, right? Fundamentally, in security, one of the main things that we need to be looking at is trends and patterns and, and observations over time. And if you give somebody 100,000 lines of logs or 100,000 vulnerabilities that are picked up over the last five or six years, then they're not going to be able to tell you very, very much insight into what's actually gone on. Whereas with the sort of the capabilities that machine learning and, and artificial intelligence have, I think the potential to be able to just ingest and, and look at those at a sort of holistic level is, is incredibly vast. Yeah. So the, the, the sheer volume of data that you have to collect to know what is happening in a particular estate or landscape is so vast. You know, from a Netasir point of view, two trillion records this year that we're running ML on. It's not human knowable. You can't ask a lot of people to go and collate that data for you, curate it. You can't get any insight from it. The only way you can do it is through the massive spark clusters that we run to actually process that. I echo what both of you have said. I kind of, I'm coming at from a slightly different view. So I'm generally looking at it from the, the other aspect in terms of threat intelligence collection, right? We're, we're going out there and we're collecting lots of data about chatter and all these other things that we can use to, to inform. And while it is human readable and you could get a team of, you know, 10 analysts to go and sit there and read that, that's so inefficient. If we can get AI to do many kind of summarization tasks there and here's a summarized thing that the analysts can look at, then we're reducing the, the, the time that they're spending, but we're not reducing the quality of the work. And I think for me at the moment, that's the, the way I'm using AI. I'd probably add to that as well. I'm sure you see a lot with analysts where they are expected to look through massive swathes of data. There's a, there's no element of burnout that comes into that as well. You know, you ask somebody to do a very repetitive task over and over and over again, and eventually it becomes a very painful process for them, high levels of stress, and, and you end up chewing through people at unhealthy rates. And so I think that's one of the things that maybe doesn't get talked about so much in AI when we are thinking about some of the benefits, but just being able to remove 
people from the more painful processes is perhaps just as important as sort of the pattern recognition and things like that. That's a really important point because especially in our industry, burnout and stress is such a major factor. Um, I can't remember the exact stats, but I remember reading a report about like just so many people were saying they were planning to leave the industry just because of, of the burnout and stress. So if we can reduce that and keep the talented people in the same industry that we keep talking about having a skill shortage, then that's, that's win-win. It's certainly something that is required and using AI appropriately so the human element in the machine can actually become a strategic asset is really important. Exactly what you're talking about, Cyril, I mean, we ingest a whole lot of threat data. It would be impossible for the threat team to actually manually curate that. And the benefits of actually having the AI in there is that you can take more time to go and investigate those threats thoroughly. It's, it's quite obvious when you, when you put it in those terms, but it makes your job much more interesting. So rather than reading through a lot of stuff, you're actually doing something about the threats that we're, we're uncovering. So yeah, really, really interesting. Um, do, do we think that business is underestimating the potential or, or the opposite? Based on the emotive piece that we started with, which I think is, is really important, are we missing out already on the benefits we could get from AI? I don't know whether businesses are underestimating the potential. In, in a lot of cases, I think people are misunderstanding potential. You know, people have seen GPT and people have seen the sort of capability of interacting with what feels like a person and they think that that is the be all and end all of what AI can do. They then start running away with the kinds of ability to be able to interpret text as you feed it into a system and, and all of the concepts there. And, and in that process, maybe get the misconception that it's just a really straightforward, easy process to be able to apply that into their business, but also the misconception that that's the only thing that AI is capable of doing and that and the whole host of other different types of AI and, and, and formats that it can take, which they really should be exploring. They just, they just sort of set to one side for, at least for the time being, while everybody's in this big GPT hype, as it were. I think I'll add to that just the sheer amount of organizations since chat GPT, there's just so much noise now that people can't actually properly evaluate it. It's not so much that they underestimate AI, they don't understand the differentiators between different organizations saying they've, they've got AI and what's that AI do and what do they mean by AI and ML? Is it actually AI or are they just using the buzzword? So, Absolutely. I started by saying this isn't an if statement. AI is here and it's not going away. It's a when. When is this going to be adopted? It'll be adopted by vendors that you use regardless if you run any kind of IT operations or security operations. I think the bit that not a lot of people are talking about is the how. How do you actually adopt AI? So as somebody who buys software a lot, how do I evaluate? How do I understand, one, what my requirements are in this area? And two, how do I validate what it is you know, the AI-based solution I'm looking at actually works for me? So. Uh, let's say we've been deploying AI across our customer states for sort of five years. So we have quite a lot of experience in this. And we have a very good way of taking customers from that point of not quite understanding the reason they need AI in their environment all the way through to kind of automated mitigation of threat. That journey for the customer starts with generally in a place of slight mistrust. We deal with web traffic and web traffic is obviously one of the major revenue generating streams in any business any retail business, e-commerce, finance, you know, it, it is of great value. And anything that interferes with that needs to be well-checked for obvious reasons. So taking customers through that 
trust process of the efficacy, um, uh, reliability, the availability of our services is really, really important. And I know, Thomas, your, your tooling at Cytix also has quite a lot of this involved. Do you have that same kind of journey with the customer? To an extent, I think when you say it's not an if statement and AI is going to happen, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people recognize or, or have had as much appreciation for is the fact that this is not new technology by any stretch. This is something that has been out there, been used. I mean, everybody knows that YouTube and Google and um, social media have algorithms that they use in order to determine what kind of data to present to you and when to present it to you. And the illusion that this last year's worth of evolution, you know, language processing and generative AI has somehow been the inception of AI is a mistake, I think. And when you start talking to people about that and, and showing people that actually this is not an unfamiliar technology and this is something that we are trusting to be ingrained into our lives on a daily basis. It's a much, much easier conversation to have. But also, fundamentally, AI is an expensive tool to be able to build. And so I don't think that we should just be trying to apply it absolutely everywhere. We should be trying to apply it in the places where we have either tried and failed or simply haven't tried because we don't have a tenable alternative solution to the problem, at which point I think the sort of proof of value is fairly evident in itself. If you can't do something beforehand, you can do it afterwards. Obviously, there is value in that service. In terms of being able to take your hands away and trust that the AI is able to do things um, or, or whether or not we should even be open to doing that at the moment, that is obviously it's a, it's a risk-based decision. There's lots of things that individual cases people need to consider. But at the end of the day, my problem with the conversation that people have around that is that we seem to be holding AI to some much, much higher standard than the standard that we hold people to or, or traditional technology to. You know, if we look at people talk about, for instance, um, using AI to help pharmacies, the risk that might come from AI is misdiagnosing somebody and then providing the wrong type of medication. Now, if that happens one time in a thousand, then that's absolutely not acceptable as far as most people are concerned. In, in an AI world, but that happens more like one in 600 times or something like that in the real world using humans. I mean, it's probably, probably more than that even, and that is an acceptable level of risk. So, you know, you, you, you really have to look at this, I think, with, with a lot of pragmatism in order to say, yes, this is not an infallible technology. Yes, hallucinations is, I think, the word of the year from Oxford Dictionary, yeah. because we are aware that there are some limitations in this technology, but no. Those risks, those slight risks do not mean that this is not an acceptable solution to a lot of problems. Yeah, it, it's interesting. This is something that's come up in a, a couple of the groups that I've been speaking in, that acceptable risk. And, and I think part of it is that you can hold a person to account, but you can't really at the moment hold an AI language model to account, right? That is likely to be changed with legislation and regulation in the not too distant future, certainly in the EU and the US. and I would imagine in the UK at the point that we have to do it. It's exactly as you said, it's that holding something that you don't quite understand to account. You know, everybody understands that humans make errors. We make errors every day, all the time. But somehow it's not acceptable for a machine to make an error because of our perception of what a machine is. A machine doesn't make errors. A machine always makes the same part every time, turn the handle and the same thing comes out. And it's not, it's not true. So the, the bit for me that's missing is the practicality. Because if you're trying to buy new software, 
nearly any hand and L. There is going to be an element of AI in there. They will certainly be telling you that there is an element of AI in there. And that kind of practical, how do you evaluate if it's actually, one, relevant to the problem you're trying to solve, two, meets your requirements, and three, has good efficacy, so it's not hallucinating wildly on your prize assets. And I think that's the bit that really is, is interesting to me because while you've got a lot of emotion, like I say, it's a very emotional subject. While you have emotion, it's very difficult to make decisions. And it's even harder if you don't have a blueprint to do that. So going to your own requirements, looking at the efficacy of the models that have been employed, whatever you put them into, and making sure that the results aren't stored in the black box that you can't get access to, making sure that there is explainability around the decision-making, that that AI module, whatever it might be, is providing. Because if you don't have that, you are playing to the fears of the emotion and the person buying it. So that kind of buyer journey needs to be very carefully managed from beginning to end. So yeah, it's, it, I think there'll be a lot written on this in the next year as people start and probably fail to implement AI solutions, whether that's through a vendor or themselves. So I think there's a big academic study to be done on this, undoubtedly. I think where a lot of the distrust in AI that maybe isn't distrust in people comes from as well is the fact that it's not very good at showing it's working out. And that means it's very, very hard to understand whether the answer that you're getting is the right answer or the wrong answer. You, you know, you can't measure it in the same way. But if you're sort of, pardon the pun, AI isn't binary. It doesn't have to just be on or off. You can use AI in combination with people or you can introduce AI in phased approaches and you can say, okay, well, I'm going to get it to get this far in the process and then I'm going to, you know, let a human supervise or let a human make some judgment or in, I'm going to run the two in parallel and then compare the results and build up that trust over time. So I think that's where, as long as you've got defined criteria for what success looks like, what good looks like, and you can measure it, you can run those comparisons and you can build that understanding and build that trust through the experience and not necessarily just have to say, okay, from now on, I'm going to let AI just run everything in all situations and, and not really think about it past that. Yeah, and then we, we have patterns for this in IT. Observation mode across all security tooling is the first thing that always gets enabled, AI or not AI. Understanding and ratifying results, and that, that stands even more. And I think the key bit for vendors is to, is to be able to show what is actually coming out as a result from, from the software that's deployed. Being able to compare with the baseline that you have today. So things like next-gen WAF or WAP or bot management in our case, vulnerability management in your case. You know, what was the baseline before? Why is AI building on top of that to make this better? And being able to demonstrate that in a clear way in reporting the self-service and self-explanatory, that's the thing that will change this from an emotional reaction to a business process piece which is we now can't do without this. And that's actually the journey that a lot of customers we work with go on from, okay, you can turn a bit of blocking on now. You can turn a bit of your mitigation on now. Okay, you can turn a bit more on. And then by the end of it, yeah, you know, blocking half the internet because it's actually malicious. And that, that is the journey that people tend to go through. But we can only do that if we expose the metrics, expose the explainability, the context in which these actions are taking place. I think that's really important for anybody buying to actually understand that. You just need to go on that journey and, and test, basically. To echo what Tom said, I think that whole holding AI to a higher standard than humans is probably going to be one of the 
biggest reasons for AI not being exploited as well as it can be. Everything from like driverless cars to anything is always that if something's a machine, it needs to be perfect and there's never going to be an AI that's perfect. That just will never happen. And the sooner people realize that and start tempering their expectations and then also developing what are the metrics can we measure how accurate we are at this process right now? And then can we measure the delta between that and an AI product? I think that's when people will be able to probably start trusting AI that yes, we get a 10% increase in accuracy here. We can already measure the efficiency, but I think it's the accuracy bit that people are hung up on. A question I have and, and something that, you know, I've, I've thought about for a while, obviously building an AI product. And as you say, having bought several products that both promise to be AI and products that don't mention AI much that probably do use some behind the scenes is how necessary do you think is to be putting AI at the forefront of the description of what you actually do? And if we look at Google or Facebook or YouTube or people like that, they don't typically refer to what's going on behind the scenes as AI. They don't need to say this is an AI powered product. There are some use cases inside what they do. There are some processes that are benefited by it. But do you think the calling it AI is helping us? Or do you think that all that's doing is feeding the marketing machine and also maybe the fear machine? Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. Um, what people really want is then this is why it stem, starts with the requirements, right? What people really want is to solve the problem that's in front of them. If they could do that with a piece of paper and a pen, that'd be your first port of call. You know, it doesn't matter that, that there's AI in the background. There, there, there is some efficacy piece there that matters. But that, as I was saying before, is a pattern that we've been buying software with for decades and, and longer. You know, does it meet the requirement that I'm buying it for? Does it solve the problem that I have as a CISO? Can I see my vulnerabilities in my state a lot easier if I use this tool? And the fact that it's got AI in the background, you might want to know a little bit about the data and you might want to know a little bit about the models and the risk, but you would probably want to know that anyway if there was no AI involved. So, yeah, I think it is that kind of rush to buzzwords, the hype cycle is absolutely driving a lot of the marketing and the, and the way that we talk about this. Really, as buyers, you just want something that works. You know, you, you want to be able to define the problem, define the solution and deploy it. Yeah, 100%, 100% agree. And that's the feedback that we get from customers as well is, you know, they're happy to help facilitate us in things like training the models and they're happy to help um, facilitate us in testing out the efficacy of these solutions. But the end sentence of pretty much every customer call is always just the proof will be in the pudding. You know, that's, I can't count the number of times I've heard that statement because they don't really care. As long as it meets their security criteria, as long as it meets their success criteria, they don't really care how it gets done. And, and I think that's the right way to look at things. And so we'll, uh, we'll learn and adapt over time where the AI should be applied and where maybe we should just Part that I do and say, let's just use these traditional, simple approaches and not get overexcited as, as much as it's, it's very tempting for the technical people to do that. At the end of the day, people are buying an outcome, not, not yeah, the yeah. thing in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Proof being in the pudding is probably a good place to leave this because that's essentially where we're going to end up. We'll find out next year is going to be really interesting. Okay. So now we're going to move on to our next topic, which is securing the supply chain. CISOs are rightly concerned with gaining as much control as possible over internal systems so that it can be secured against known and novel threats. But businesses are also reliant on their supply chain and third-party systems 
which have their own potential vulnerabilities. What potential risk does this expose and how can CISOs manage them whilst maintaining the value of these relationships? And, and here to help us answer that question today is Hayden Brooks from Risk Lecture. Uh, Hayden, do you want to do a quick intro and, and tell us more about this subject? Yeah, happy to. Thanks, uh, Andy. So, brief introduction on me. Started my career as a security consultant at a big four company. Spent about two years there, dabbling in various different domains of security, having a background in neuroscience uh, before that. And then, yeah, did a few, few projects in supply chain. So, became quite interested in the topic. Then moved to another big four where I was made their subject matter expert on supply chain security risk, which was good fun. Then had a brief stint at a startup consultancy before leaving there and uh, deciding what to do next. Based on a lot of the problems I'd seen our clients have at Big Four um, when looking at supply chain security, decided to found Risk Ledger to try and solve them, essentially. So we founded that in 2018, uh, launched the platform in 2020. We now uh, just raised our Series A, 40 people, growing client list across multiple different kind of sectors. Cool. And in terms of your overview of third-party risk and supply chain, what do you just want to describe the landscape that you see at the moment? Yeah, happily. So when we are speaking to potential clients, usually we describe them as having three different types of supply chain. We talk about it in terms of their corporate supply chain, which is every single company their company engages with, and they might consume services or products through that. But these are the other companies that allow their company to operate. The second one is their software supply chain. So that's slightly different and that looks more if they are building software products, where are the packages within those products being pulled from? Are they through vulnerabilities? And it's, it's more kind of a technical uh, domain. And the third supply chain is the logistics supply chain, which looks more at making sure that the right products are in the right place at the right time. So what I do and what Resedger does is we specialize in that corporate supply chain. So it's helping companies work with other companies and trust that they have the right uh, maturity of security uh, to be able to work with them essentially. And the other way we slice it is that when you do kind of zoom into that corporate supply chain, uh, people will tend to have many suppliers. And the way we think about how to categorize those suppliers is basically using the CIA triangle. So some of those suppliers you'll share data with, and there's a confidentiality risk then. You need to make sure that those suppliers are protecting the data that you're sharing with them. Uh, the second is an availability risk. And uh, traditionally, kind of clients refer to some of their suppliers as being critical. And we tend to link criticality to availability. And that's all about making sure that the suppliers your business relies on stay online and producing or providing their service as required. And then the third is an integrity risk. And this one we talk about in terms of if you give system access to your suppliers or you link your systems together in some way, it's all about protecting access to essentially those trusted backdoors into your systems through the suppliers. And those three kind of categories of suppliers, then you could use that essentially to then go out to your whole supplier base and tier them in terms of uh, which suppliers are important and start to think about actually what the impact of an incident at a supplier would be on you, given which one of those three categories they fall into. We have a platform that essentially enables the conversation between them and the suppliers to happen in a much easier way than those traditional kind of spreadsheet-based questionnaires. Uh, so you can think of our platform always like a social network. The idea is organizations sign up. We can help that organization describe what they do to secure themselves. We can help them implement various bits of security. And then other companies that need to run assurance against them can connect to them, run that assurance against them, uh, and then do some whizzy things on top as well with some of the data we collect. Cool. I mean, I've, I've actually had a look at the risk ledger product. It's really interesting stuff. So we've got our resident expert in everything, Cyril, who is going to talk through the actual. So we've pulled out a few examples from the last year of third-party breaches, et cetera. So Cyril, do you want to talk us through SolarWinds? Yeah, sure. And I think it's really interesting, Hayden, how you stay into the CIA triad because 
I think, especially when I, I used to look at third parties, the availability and confidentiality were always the ones people focused on, right? If we're giving data to people, are they protecting it? And if we rely on them for a critical service, are they going to go down or are they going to go out of business uh, and so on? But the integrity one really links to kind of the solar winds incident, which has probably been one of the biggest and uh, most well-known third-party risk incidents. This was where SolarWinds, which um, is a software developer, their software, which is used to monitor networks and is installed in lots of different organizations. The threat actors actually were able to infiltrate the build process and poison the software of malware. So if you were an organization who had this software running, a, an update would happen and that update would actually give you malware, which gave the, the attackers backdoors into your, your network. So through no fault of your own, and, you know, just running some network software and running the update because, you know, in security, they tell you if an update comes, you need to run that because patching is important. Uh, you run the update and then suddenly the, there's a backdoor. Yeah. So just because of the, you know, the scale of the amount of people using SolarWinds software at the time, this, this reached like tens of thousands of organizations and I probably think of the biggest supply chain beach out there. One of the more impactful, I think, as well, because they worked a lot with with US government. So a lot of the uh, the end targets ended up being really quite uh, security conscious organizations. But that also touches on another important point in the supply chain, which is one I didn't describe at the start. So one of the things when speaking to prospects about supply chain that becomes apparent is people think of their supply chain almost as their third parties and they kind of forget everything that happens underneath that. But they also forget all of the kind of the interconnections between their third parties as well. So instead of thinking of supply chain as just kind of a list of companies you work with, it's almost like a spider's web underneath you filled with companies that are always nodes and then connections between them. And this is a classic example of a threat actor targeting a company, knowing that that company worked with a long list of very desirable targets. And by breaching that one company, they were then able to gain access to many others. Um, and it was a, an attack against that integrity uh, part of the triad. So yeah, classic attack, quite an interesting one. It's almost an evolution of the, you know, the classic water and all attack where, you know, you've got the, the website that, you know, everyone goes to and you put some, some malware there. But I think what gets me with this one is just the sheer audacity uh, of it, right, to, to, to put your malware in a build so that that gets released that way. Yeah. And the, the complexity of it as well, like um, if you think about, I mean, we're a software company and if you think about actually the steps it takes to, to try and kind of poison our build with a some sort of bit of malware, it was definitely a very thought out and very targeted uh, style of attack. And you can tell that as well by the end companies that were breached. So I think the vulnerable software was put into about 10,000 companies, but I think the actual list of companies that uncovered a breach within their systems was, was a lot smaller than that. I think it was sub a hundred, but I could be wrong there. So don't quote me on that. It was highly targeted. And, and of course, because the lead in to actually get this attack off the ground was a significant amount of effort. Yeah. So they knew what the return on investment would be. If it was this successful. is also where the corporate supply chain and the software supply chain overlap slightly. So and if you think of something like SolarWinds, there's another style of attack. It was either a real life example or it was a proof of concept where somebody had become a member of an open source community and then put a backdoor in an open source package that then was used by many other bits of software. And it's a similar style of attack where they're able to kind of put this backdoor into many other bits of software. Um, and then spread that around a, a list of companies and then they can kind of pick their targets from in quite a nice way. So yeah, the threat actors are definitely getting very creative in the way they, they think about how to use one attack to reach many others, which is, is quite fun to watch, but also quite scary. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing, God, there was a lot that impact with SolarWinds. We won't do it today. But one of the things is it didn't matter whether you were on the target list. If you were one of those 10,000 companies, you still have to work out whether you had solar winds in your state, were you affected? You couldn't not then patch 
you couldn't then like, roll back or roll forward, and even if you were not one of the sub hundred that were actually being targeted. So it just caused absolute chaos across tens of thousands of networks. This is also one of the problems we look to solve. So when you're running kind of a supply chain program, people think it's all about looking at the maturity of your suppliers, which to a certain degree it is. But if you visualize that supply chain underneath you as a map of, of nodes and connections between them, what's more important in a case like that is spotting where the problem is, but then who else is impacted by that. And we tend to call that the blast radius. So if you pick any company across the world, it's who it would be impacted by an incident there. Um, and how critical is kind of that connection between the company that's been hit by a breach and then the other companies around them. And that's something that no programs that I know of today can accurately solve. So with that in mind, I guess one of the questions I had was how, how can CISOs manage third-party security risk as a smaller player in the relationship? So, I mean, this is something that affects me on a daily basis. We have public cloud hosting. And as such, we're not going to be the major player in that relationship. That's just a yeah. fact. So what, what, are, what are the strategies? What can CISOs do to, to mitigate? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So um, I'm going to talk for a minute around the context and then dive into hopefully some solutions or some actionable points. But if we go back even 10 years to when I started looking at supply chain, really back then, the only companies that ran supply chain reviews with any sort of maturity and discipline were the big banks. And they had the weight and the leverage to be able to do this and to pay teams to go out and start reviewing these suppliers. Now, as kind of security has matured, now everybody pretty much has to run these supply chain reviews. And that's where that problem is cropped up, cropped up for two reasons. One, smaller companies who are paying smaller amounts of money to their suppliers don't quite have that leverage to be able to demand reviews to be completed. But equally, it's led to a burden on the actual suppliers themselves. So if you were a supplier that, let's say, worked with the C-Banks and then a hundred other clients, Back in the day, it was only really the banks that were asking you to fill in these kind of questionnaires and answers about security, whereas now it's everyone. And suddenly these security teams are being overwhelmed with questions. And if you take a cloud service provider, they work with tens of thousands of clients. So it's just, it's impossible for them to be able to respond in any meaningful way to that breadth of, of client base. And that's probably, yeah, that's one of the key things when we look at supply chain is just scale and the amount of work it takes to actually run these processes today. And it's part of what we do is all about reducing that burden of work to kind of a manageable amount, both for the clients, but also for the suppliers. Now, in terms of the smaller companies trying to review larger ones, that's an, uh, a, a problem that's common. What we tend to find is uh, I've worked with governments that have tried to get cloud service providers to complete reviews, and it's been a journey to try and get them to do that. And um, so if you're a small company spending, let's say, a grand a month with somebody like AWS, it's going to be nigh on impossible for them to do anything bespoke for you. Um, and there you kind of have to fall back on typically a trust center or some sort of like uh, a list of certifications or artifacts that you can kind of draw from and, and almost use that as a proxy for the review. The second thing we advise clients on there is that if a company refuses to do a review in itself, that is an outcome. And that's an outcome that you can list in your risk register and use. So when you're, let's say, talking to a regulator or talking to the board, that is a viable outcome. And it's, it's not as if you haven't done anything. The third thing, and this is something that we're really trying to promote, is that over the last 10 years, if we go back 10 years, kind of the supply chain view type process was always seen as an audit process. And it typically sat with, with risk auditors. Um, and the issue there was that if you go to any company and audit them, and you, you'll know this being a CISO, you're already on the back foot. You want to pass an audit, you want as few findings as possible. And so you're going to try and hide everything you can, assuming that there is something to hide to pass that audit. And that's just the nature of what an audit is. Um, and if you think about that in the supply chain, these companies are trying to win contracts. So they also are then on the back foot. So there's kind of two parts of this. Firstly is we try and change that conversation away from an audit into a conversation. 
if the supplier knows that their contract isn't at risk and that actually by talking an honest conversation about what they're doing, the client might be able to help them. Uh, they might be able to pay a bit more money to get more controls implemented. Maybe also give them advice. They may be able to implement some internal controls themselves to minimize the risk on themselves without the supplier doing anything. That conversation becomes a lot, lot healthier and a lot easier to have. And if it's still a challenge trying to do that with a larger organization, we tend to promote this idea of defending as one and banding together and collaborating with your peers um, or other friends in the industry who may also be wanting to review that large supplier. We've got multiple cases where we've had a large, for example, technology company where one of our clients has tried to review them and there's been pushback. But actually, if we band together kind of 10 or 12 of our clients who all use that supplier, suddenly not only do they have more weight and more leverage to enable that review to happen, but it makes more sense as well for the larger supplier because they're getting 12 reviews off their plate with one conversation. And um, it's all about what we can do to kind of collaborate and change the conversation away from an audit to a much friendlier conversation, but also how we can have this conversation more out in the open to be more transparent, uh, to reduce the burden of work, but also to make it more valuable for the clients themselves. It's good advice, even when you can audit a supplier, there's it's a lot of work for both sides. Yeah. The other, the other thing on the audits is like, at the minute they're very risk-based and running a risk company, the first problem in supply chain is capacity, but the second problem is that typically CISOs don't actually see a return on the amount of time they spend on these risk assessments. So, I mean, you could drop me on an on-site audit and hypothetically with AWS for four days, there is nothing I'm going to find in four days with AWS that will be actionable or, or meaningful to a client. So the idea there is that with, I believe that we're focusing a little bit too much on the risk side of the supply chain and not enough on the response, the detection and the recovery side of the supply chain. So part of our platform is all about opening up these new capabilities when something like SolarWinds does happen, where do they sit within the supply chain, who's impacted and what can we do very quickly to minimize that impact across the network. And then that leads into things like concentration risks and systemic risks and all the other domains that I could sit here and chat for, for hours about, but I won't, won't dive into it. Talking about like the concentration risk and, and that kind of face, one of the other supply chain incidents that is commonly talked about is kind of the Log4j one, which I mean, that one's slightly different because it's open source and we can, we can talk about open source and all of that good stuff. But the, the real thing here was just that so many of your third party vendors would have Log4j somewhere in their stack and maybe not know about it, or you wouldn't know about it. And then how do you, as a CTO, you know, get that confidence that, okay, you've dealt with it in your estate, but has it been dealt with, with all your suppliers? Yeah. Very difficult question to answer. So the way I think about the corporate and the software supply chain together is that you can almost imagine the corporate supply chain is a web of companies at the top layer. And then underneath that, you always have this web of software packages that kind of has a dotted line up into that top layer of companies. So you end up with multiple companies using different kind of packages that may be vulnerable to something. Um, and there are almost two different networks. One's kind of a, a one almost on that oversight seven layer model. One's kind of a layer down from that corporate um, layer. In terms of something like Log4j, um, that's where you find like a supply chain that touches both. So there's two issues there. The issue that we kind of help clients with and we have a lot of experience in is how you would go out to your supply chain network and understand who is either investigating thinks they're vulnerable to it, remediating or is vulnerable to it and can't remediate. And that gives you an idea of what companies may be impacted and who else in that chain might be hit. But then the second part of that question is more on the technical side. It's all about understanding actually what software am I building? What software do I use? What are the packages involved in building up that software? Um, are those packages vulnerable to something or have a vulnerability like Log4j in them? And then essentially, yeah, how can I detect that and what can I do about it? And there is a different discipline and, and style of tool set 
that's all about kind of tracking bits of software, being able to spot vulnerabilities within them and then being able to, to react and remediate to them as well. So I would almost class them as two slight different disciplines, just with huge overlap between the two. Cool. So moving on from the S-bombs, increasingly becoming a regulatory requirement here in the US, certainly in the EU in the not too distant. Why do you think they're important and how do you actually take advantage of them? Yeah, so I mean, in Esplan, software bit of materials is essentially just a, the way I think about it is a, almost like an ingredients list for a recipe. So if you imagine your bit of software is a recipe and you're building a cake, the S-bombs is a, the, kind of the list of in, ingredients you're throwing into the pot to build that. And the way the developers work, they'll be using that list of ingredients, then tying it all together with some bespoke code. And the idea behind an S-bomb is making sure that people who are building software have a really good grasp over what is going into that software. And that's kind of the first step, I think, in a longer chain of steps that will increase maturity on the software supply chain side. So I think the idea behind kind of the regulation, it's big in the US, and as I say, it's bleeding now out into kind of other geographies, is that if we can make sure every company really understands the ingredients they're throwing into the mix, then we can use kind of that bit of data from each one of those companies to start to map where those packages are going. So that if there is a problem with one of them, we know who is impacted very quickly and then that leads to a much faster response and a much quicker tidy up before these vulnerabilities can be essentially exploited. I wouldn't even pass it as a security thing either. It's almost like a kind of good practice development in the same way kind of a lot of security is to do with IT hygiene and it's actually what the IT team should yeah. be doing anyway. This is kind of a similar thing where developers should be keeping track of those packages, should be making sure that their licenses are all compliant and different business pieces like that. And this is almost just using security to try and enforce that because now we have this extra risk of if one of those packages is vulnerable. And actually there's real world kind of impacts that will happen across that network of companies relying on the software. It massively leans into the DevSecOps piece. Oh, massively, yeah. Just understanding exactly what it is that you're building. And there's so many good practice reasons to actually need this. Now, it isn't just the policy around the compliance to these regulations. It's also how far out of date are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've all worked at companies that run old third-party software as part of a, what they're describing as a new build. And there's a lot of problems that come with that. They're not security related. So it's just good practice in, in DevSecOps, something we practice in that suit. Good. Same at risk I thought so. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing with SBOMs is, is always like the, the technical solutions that I'm hearing that, that people have built and are thinking about building on top of them. So because like uh, DevSecOps is becoming more and more automated, it's almost like these lists and these SBOMs essentially can be written in machine-friendly kind of formats. Um, and then it's almost becomes this a big data problem, being able to map that data against each other and, and companies being able to share that. And I know quite a few companies that are actually sharing their SBOM um, publicly as well, which then kind of just increases the transparency, which inherently leads to, I think, better security because it's almost the similar argument that we make for open source code. It's if it's transparent, then we can spot the problems, hopefully before the bad guys do. Yeah, so I think it's only ever a good thing that people are, are now kind of having to do it through regulation. And I'm not a huge fan of regulation in general, but uh, this one seems like a, a no-brainer. So other categories of, of third-party risk, Cyril, thoughts? I mean, Hayden did a really good bit at the start about, you know, how he separates it all. But I think what, one that we haven't talked about yet is, you know, when you're storing data elsewhere. So thought about, you know, software. And whether that's open source software vulnerabilities or, you know, malware. But I think for most organizations, you've got these third parties that you are handing data to. And, you know, it can be varied from, and I'm going to use two examples from, from Uber, just because they, they are always in the news. But, you know, there, there was one where they had a, a data breach of about 
70,000 employees, names, details, um, through a third party asset management company. So that is in the tech space. There's another one, um, a few months later where they had, you know, private information of their drivers, like names and social security numbers. And that there was through a law firm. So, you know, it's not just your tech providers. Then there was one very recently actually with the, the Met police. And it was just like any type of third party organization you have that you're sharing data with, it's not just your cloud services. It's not just the software. It's everyone can have these, these breaches, but just thinking holistically um, about the situation. Yeah. It's an interesting one as well, because I don't have any hard and fast data to back this up, but my inclination is that a lot of the breaches I see in the supply chain to do with integrity. So people targeting one company to almost get a backdoor into many others tend to be very targeted. The data ones on the whole tend to be very opportunistic and not actually very targeted. So it tends to be kind of less mature threat actors finding a, a vulnerable company, breaking into that company, stealing a ton of data, and then realizing they've hit the gold mine because actually they've got a hundred company stage in front of them instead of just the one they, they breached. So, and that tends to be the more common style of attack we see on that side. There's a wider point there just around data hygiene in the company. Like if, if you think about logging in at work or anything like that, just the, the amount of different tools nowadays that touch potentially sensitive data with SaaS products popping up left, right, and center. I think even among startups, there was a, an interesting bit of research saying that most startups of kind of 20, 30 people use over a hundred SaaS teams, which is, is ludicrous. And there is no easy way to track kind of where your data is going, who has access to it and, and, and what they're doing to protect it, which then is, is why supply chain is so complex. Cause not only do you have this kind of very cumbersome process where you're trying to write over your suppliers, there's always a, a foundational step there, which is we don't typically speak to any companies who really even can provide a full supplier list. Um, and even if they do have a very mature procurement team, who kind of have a decent supplier list that, that covers most of the major contracts. There will be SaaS tools that somebody's logged into at some point within the company or a team uses, and they haven't told procurement about, and often that kind of foundational data isn't fully there for somebody to run like a 100% coverage supply chain program. Those data attacks are, I think in my head, they're less impactful because they are less targeted, but that changes depending on the type of supply you're looking at. If you're looking at somebody, let's say who specializes in data storage, so like Iron Mountain or AWS or someone like that then that would obviously be very impactful. But if you're kind of going around hacking random SaaS apps, um, I think the impact of the data leaks there probably aren't as big as, as let's say a, a breach against integrity and being able to hack into many other companies off the back of one breach. And the other thing there, it does actually change the style of review. So oftentimes when you're looking at a company that stores data, you want to focus in on confidentiality controls, things like encryption, um, like TLS, these kind of things to protect data. Whereas if you're looking at a company that needs to be available, so it's a, a, an attack against a, a critical supplier, there it tends to be more about availability and resilience, being able for that supplier to get back up again if they are hit and having a good understanding actually of what the supply does for you and what data they have, if any, really does help tailor that review that you're doing to make it a bit more valuable to you. Yeah. The kind of SaaS sprawl is a really interesting challenge. So I've heard people talk about having a ratio of SaaS apps to, to the users. And what's a healthy ratio? Well, anything under one, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's a one-to-one -one relationship with a SaaS application of the number of years ago. So, you know, there, there are parts of the security market that are springing up and, and becoming successful uh, to try and track that. The other interesting thing there is that SaaS apps are very, very good. This is a good thing, but also um, very difficult thing from a security point of view. One of the tips that we often speak to CISOs about in terms of then finding out kind of a very thorough supplier list is if procurement, uh, 
but let's say you're struggling to do that, go to finance and find out who you're paying. And that can be one of the best ways for you to get a very, very good list of suppliers very quickly, including a lot of SaaS apps. Now, the issue with SaaS is they often follow a product-led growth model, which means you can have a large number of users uploading a fair amount of data to a SaaS app before they start charging. And so you end up with this kind of hidden group of suppliers that actually tend to not be that critical, but could be touching some quite sensitive data. And you have no easy way of finding out who they are. There are tools popping up now that do try and look at kind of internet traffic coming in and out of an organization to map them out. And it's the same problem as finance as well. Like uh, people are losing track of how many of these SaaS tools they're paying for. You end up paying a lot of money for a lot of SaaS tools that often aren't used really at all across the business. Overlapping usage. And yeah, the, yes, it's an interesting, interesting challenge. Kind of to move this on a little bit to the most hot topic in security at the moment, AI. Do you think the bomb concept is likely to be applied to AI? And I think we've coined the phrase of AI bomb becoming a requirement in the near future. Essentially what you've just described is a huge amount of data and a huge amount of connections between that data, not just with the software packages, but the companies that are using them and the vendors. And you put resellers in there and MSSPs. Do you see the AI becoming a factor in trying to sort through this? Yes, but I would say from what I've seen, it's still not very clear how that's going to end up. So for example, at the minute, a lot of the AI conversations that I am seeing focus less on the security of the AI, whether it's a build at home type product or whether it's you're using a, a supplier like OpenAI or, or Microsoft, the conversation tends to focus on the ethics of it. So almost what's the ethics of using this AI? What's the AI doing? Are we trusting the outputs? Are there any hallucinations? What data are they using actually to train these models? And it tends to focus more on that rather than traditional cybersecurity type concepts. I would say where the, where the AI bomb, which is a really good term, may come into it, it, it always overlaps again with those two different types of supply chains, the corporate supply chain and the software supply chain. So I'd say if your company is engaging with other companies and using their AI models, so if you're querying the API of open AI, and there it's more of a traditional supply chain type problem where you would need to do a thorough review of that company, how they think about their own security, how they think about how they've built the AI and what the AI does. And that's kind of a similar problem, maybe with a different set of controls that you're looking at. If you're then looking at more building your own AI type tooling, that's where more software supply chain comes into it and where you'd want to track things like, and use TensorFlow and all these other kind of types of packages that, that can help support the build of that product. Uh, and that's where I see an AI bomb kind of being required there. Okay, so every month we turn to our resident threat researchers to describe a different attack type in our attack of month feature. This month's attack is a fake account creation. Cyril, can you tell us a bit about what account creation is and how it works? Sure, so fake account creation is essentially the process of registering accounts using either fake or stolen information. And it's one of these more insidious types of attacks, which is really the precursor for a lot of other attacks. So why would attackers need fake accounts? Well, these days, identity, especially your digital identity, is really the core of any interaction you have with a digital service. And if you think of things like loyalty points or different types of limitations based on your account, if an attacker can take hold of multiple accounts, they can either bypass these limitations or they, they can get more um, loyalty points. So creating fake accounts is really a powerful technique for attackers to do. And whilst an attacker can sit there at their computer and type in lots of uh, details for their account, it's much easier for them to do it in bulk. Um, and that's what fake account creation bots allow them to do. They're also known as account registration bots in that ecosystem. 
And some examples of kind of the follow-on attacks that fake account creation bots uh, are used for are things like new joiner promotion abuse. If I get X percent off a purchase of a new customer and I make multiple accounts, I can get X percent off multiple times. Even things like just typical scalping, so just buying items, if you've got a restriction of one item per customer and I've got 20 accounts, then I can get 20 items. Um, gift card abuse. If I try lots of gift cards on one account, that might get noticed. If it's spread across multiple accounts, that's a bit harder to see. And, and then even things like, you know, fake reviews or spam posts, you know, if having multiple accounts is just so useful for attackers. What are the stresses within a business that make this kind of go unnoticed? Or if it is noticed, what, why? I'm thinking specifically around uh, sales goals for increased signups. I mean, this is really interesting because if we take a look back at when Elon Musk was trying to buy Twitter, yeah. a lot of companies are measuring the amount of users, especially in the kind of social media ad space. So the more users you have, the better your company is valued. So there's almost an incentive to promote and not look too closely at account registration. If you also add to the fact that with most bot attacks, so think like scalping or, or, or carding, it's all about the speed. You're using a bot there to do something quicker than a human can. But for fake account creation, speed isn't necessarily the goal here. You can do what's known as kind of a, a lower, slower tap where you're over the, a time period, you're creating multiple accounts, but you're doing this slowly. So this isn't going to be picked up by kind of some sort of rate limiting algorithm. So you've got kind of one side there that's almost you're, you're happy to kind of overlook it because your, your metrics are going up, you're getting more um, accounts and also it's not as obvious and in your face as other bot attacks and, and that lets it go unnoticed. I think where it starts getting noticed is on the marketing side when your analytics start getting skewed or on the fraud side where, you know, you, you start to see an increase in, in fraud from the fresh accounts that are operating fraudulently. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of customers we work with have a know your customer, especially where there is a big price to be won through managing to create fake accounts and using fraud. But whose responsibility do you think it is to monitor new accounts? Who should be doing this? And that's a really good question. And I, I think it's going to differ from organization to organization. I don't think it's a security problem. It's a security's responsibility because uh, security are there to help you achieve your business processes. They are not there to ensure that every account that's being created is the, the right account, which makes this a more difficult problem because it relies on communication within um, the business that people can raise something to security and say, this looks off, can you look at it? And I think that's where things fall down. But I think depending on what type of business it is, this might be a, something that customer services look at, especially in your retail spaces and where you've got um, a lot of new joiner bonuses. I think it should be there, but it really depend. I think it, the differences in places where kind of know your customer kind of the financial services, I think there, it's quite clear there that you've got, you've got compliance teams that are looking at these types of regulations and there it's quite clear where it fits, but in other organizations, it can be a bit trickier. Oh, agreed. It's scale based on the damage that can be done, right? So, and I think I know some of the answers to this, but what methods could be used to prevent fake account creation attacks? Oh, I want to hear some of the answers that you, you, you think you know. Um, so there's, uh, there's, there's the bot management. That's, uh, that's, that's a given as we're a bot management company. Um, bot management. So the know your customer stuff is designed to stop fake account 
Why isn't that working though? So I, I think it definitely increases the barrier for, for threat actors. So in terms of, is it working? It is to some extent. I think the more motivated attacker is always going to try and find a way through. And so defenses shouldn't be seen as kind of a, it stops it or it doesn't stop it. It's how do we increase the barrier to the point that it is not profitable for an attacker to do it. And in certain areas, no, your customer does do that. And um, the problem is that there is a lot of information available online for people. So we get kind of this almost identity fraud through fake account creation, where where your customer is all about kind of verifying that this person exists and they can prove that they are this person. Well, if you can scrape uh, enough information about people that's available online and you can use things like, you know, we've been talking about AI, you can use generative AI to kind of fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. You can bypass a, you know, your customer process that way. Uh, but again, that's only going to be the more advanced threat actors. So it's definitely important. I think some of the other things that people have tried using are things like phone verification to uh, making sure that they can receive phone calls. Again, with anything, all you're doing is raising the barrier and there's been lots of these, you know, renter SMS number kind of services coming out to provide threat actors with a way of bypassing that. So I don't think there's any one solution. I think it's depending on the scale of your problem, you, you start adding barriers in, increase the kind of the hurdles and make it harder for threat actors to the point where that is, it's no longer profitable for them. Yeah. I mean, essentially, we get to a point of proof of life. That's where this is going. You have to prove that you are human, which is very difficult to do when you're not actually meeting the entity that is trying to agree that you. It's that, but we're also doing that at the same time when there's this, this almost arms race and generative AI and deep yeah. fake. So yeah. how do you prove you're human? It's a blink and well, deep can blink now. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Is it biometrics? Yeah. Then there's the whole kind of how you secure in those biometrics. It, but it's that fundamental identity piece, it's the identity fraud. If you can create something that looks like a human being that has a social security number or a national insurance number in our case, a passport number, uh, uh, an address that can be looked up, the, the arms race is going to get phenomenally complicated. Neither of us said blockchain, thank God, but yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the, the other option is to try and stop it at source to prevent the actual traffic from getting to the point of signing up. There is a conduit, there's an actor, the conduit and an endpoint, right? So break the chain um, and you, you will get less fake account, which is something we do. It's something that's, uh, we stop those requests getting through in the first place. But that's, that's obviously the best way, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool, Cyril, thank you very much for that. So that's it for this month's edition of the Cybersecurity Session. I'd like to thank Cyril Noltego, Thomas Balin from Cytix and Hayden Brooks from Risk Ledger for their participation today in what I hope was a really interesting session. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening today. You can also follow our page on X at CybersecPod and email any questions or comments to podcast at We'd love to hear from you. Bot attacks are becoming more frequent, more time-consuming to stop, and cause untold damage to your brand. Thankfully, Netasea Agentless Bot Management detects up to six times more threats and stops bots automatically. Block more bad bots. Go to netasea.com.